Hey everyone, I'm your host Amanda and this is Light It Up. I'm joined by Gus McDonald to shine a light on the Cape class ships, the service ships that were the lifeblood of the lighthouses. Gus, welcome back. As requested, we are back here again exploring more about the Cape ships and their glory is. Thank you for having me, Mandy. I, I, I just cannot wait to learn more about the Cape ships. I've got a lot of requests as well myself um, that have been passed on. So it's, you know, it's just absolutely sensational to be back learning about the Cape ships once again. It's a hot topic. In today's episode, we hear from Steve Best. Hey, uh, yeah, it's Steve Best. I spent all up nearly nine years on all three ships. At first, to get my foot in the door, I sailed as a junior steward. Went all the way through to what you call able seaman, lark driver. And I was there, yeah, uh, 1981 till 19, end of 1988 or January 1989. He was part of the crew of the Cape Ships. Yeah, he's a great name as well. Steve, Steve Best. Great name, great, great character. Best one we could find. Best Steve we yeah. could find. <laughs> so the poor guy was actually in hotel quarantine in Perth when I interviewed him. And I like to think I gave him something to do. And he actually sent me some of the most amazing photographs from his time working as part of the crew. And I know last episode you mentioned how amazing it was that they actually put this scaffolding like in the middle of the ocean, yeah. building these sites out of there, like a flooded construction site, which if people aren't aware already, there is an Instagram account for this podcast where you can see those photographs. Man, I think that that exactly your amazement is probably captured in these photos. Yeah. So crazy. It, the imagery of the things that I was picturing in my mind to see it actually happening, it was way weirder than and more difficult than I ever could have thought. And Steve, particularly working during the time he did, interestingly, the crew probably would have known that they were at the cusp of the, of the transition away from, you know, gaslit lights into the solar lights which meant less maintenance and less light keepers and they're effectively kind of working to accelerate the end of the industry and putting up you know solar lights so let's take a listen to steve best hey amanda hey steve how is your dinner yeah it was all right battered fish and chips it's all good oh classic are they treating <laughs> you well in uh in quarantine yeah, so- yeah, no, it's pretty good. I got a good view over the um, Perth um, water, so it's good. Got a balcony, so I got fresh air. Lovely. And you're not bored yet? Not yet, but it's only the third day. <laughs> <laughs> you might need more than your PlayStation to keep you occupied. Yeah, I've got a hard drive full of movies, but even that's getting a bit tedious. Oh, dear. <laughs> anyway, well, hopefully this uh, interview will keep you somewhat more occupied. <laughs> yeah, people doing hard on me, I can tell you. <laughs> And you mentioned that you were able to become involved with the Cape Ships through a, a rather backdoor or um, white uh, white truth uh, journey. Yeah, yeah, it was. Um, I was still at school and my dad, uh, look, I had my heart set on being a um, bricklayer in 1980 uh, or 1981, but at the time there was a massive recession going on in the US and Australia, so there wasn't too many jobs around and apprenticeships. My dad was an in-ground pool builder. And a long story short, uh, bumped into a seaman from the bosun called Tim Tyler from the Cape Morton. Um, they got chatting. Dad said, I've got a young bloke who's keen to go to sea. He gave me a phone number. We talked about it. I just sort of said, oh, yeah, sounds all right. I'll just do this until um, I get a Bricky's apprenticeship because that's what my heart was just hell-bent on becoming. Went for an interview in Brisbane to the Department of Transport's office down in uh, 
Portitude Valley. That was classic. Mum went down with me, drove me down. They just said, uh, what do you want to do with your life, etc." Um, he said, what were your grades? What do you think your grades will be when you finish school? And I said, oh, the exams aren't for another four weeks. And he said, well, what do you think you'll get? So that was a that was a cracker, that one. Um, I, said, I, think I, do pretty, I said, I said, I do pretty good. I said, I'll probably get about 70 or 80%. He said, oh, that's good enough for us. Didn't ask my age. Um, so probably uh, school finished in December. I was doing a labouring job um, from January through to about March. And then mum got a phone call um, from the office and they said, oh, look, I think we've got a problem. Your son's only 15 years old, we think. Uh, he said he hasn't finished grade 10. And the drop of a hat, mum was really quick and said, no, he's actually 16 years old. He turns 17 in um, six months' time. And they said, oh, that's all right then. So they thought I was 16 when I went to see um but i was only 15 and i just kept that lie going until i left didn't really matter after a couple of years but yeah you're supposed to be 16 which is now 18 years old um in today's um if you want to go to see today good on your mum she was clued in straight away she was yeah she was quick off the bat and you think about it now like looking back how young i was it was amazing that my parents um like let me do a job like that uh where, where i was going to be away from home for um extended periods of time yeah, cool parents, cool liberating yeah, parents. Yeah. <laughs> what was yeah. the, what was the experience like going from a hard set on you know brick laying? I imagine it's quite landed and grounded to suddenly you are on ships in the middle of the ocean. Well, it was, um, look, it's terrifying. I remember at the time when I joined in April '81, um, there was an air hostage strike, so we didn't have the usual. Um, but well, crew change wasn't the usual thing where you caught a plane at seven in the morning up to Cairns. I had to go to the airport at midnight. We caught a charter flight up. We went into this room, and there was about twenty-five guys, thirty guys, all tattooed, big and hairy and muscly. And um, I think Dad was more scared than me, or well, we were both as scared as each other. Um, we flew up. Um, the guys were just lovely, and this is my first experience of, uh, as a child going from school and being treated um, like as an equal. They were very good. Seamen are very different. Um, wasn't too much bullying, but they looked after me. Um, and we joined on a Thursday. We sailed straight away. We went to an island called Palfrey Island, which is right next door to Lizard Island. So I'm 15. Uh, we dropped the boat down. They go and service the light. And because I was a junior steward at this stage, not a deck boy, um, we had the afternoons off, so they told me to get in the boat and we went ashore to Lizard Island. And at the time, that was the most exclusive, expensive um, barrier reef resort in Australia. And um, I couldn't believe it. Like at 1.30 in the afternoon, I'm sitting having a beer at 15 years old with all these. I was quite large for my age back then, like I was six foot. And I'm having a beer with these guys on Lizard Island. I couldn't wait to uh, reverse chat my parents from the phone there, tell them all about it. And I basically, for the next three weeks, I got off in Mackay. We sailed down through the Whitsunday Islands, and it was just a dream. Uh, Brick Lane went straight out the door. I sort of had some doubts about whether I could still go to sea because I got pretty homesick that first time. But then my second trip to sea was doing the outer reefs um, and looking after – that was on the Cape Pillar. They say she wasn't doing lights. Um, she was doing weather stations and also survey work. So we went to the outer islands, which are absolutely pristine, um, a bit like the Maldives. I've been there, but I've seen the photos. And um, that just after my second trip, I didn't want to be a bricklayer. I just, this was great. I was in a boat, 15 years old, uh, learning rope work, driving boats, fishing, diving. So, yeah, <laughs> it only took two trips and I was sold. That's unbelievable. What, what are your, you know, what what is it about that seaman life that really, you know, threw that bricklaying life out, out the door? You know, there is a sense of, you know, being away from home, but then there's also that sense of adventure. Is that what it was? Yeah, it was. Yeah, it was like um, 
yeah, oh, I don't know what sort of word to describe it. Like you're just living the dream. You're outside, um, you're doing fishing and diving where people were paying thousands upon thousands of dollars to go to do holidays. And at the time in 1981 when I did it, semen were what we call a 0.5 roster. So um, for every day you spent at sea, you got half a day's leave. So we did six weeks on, three weeks off. And then in 1980, and I thought having three weeks off was grouse because I saw my dad only get four weeks holidays a year. But for that six weeks, you're working like every day. You're, you're put in for it. Um, but it was just, uh, the it felt like family. So you knock off work, you're still there with the guys. They look after you. Um, it's just a brotherhood. Um, they're like older uncles. So the ages range from me to 15 years old um, to 16, 17. There'll be a few guys in their 20s. Married, some not married, then in the 30s, 40s, and right up to the older guys in their 50s and 60s. And everybody just looked after each other. It wasn't perfect. Um, it was dysfunctional in a lot of ways, but um, you sorted your stuff out. And I really liked how it was a community and a family-like um, feeling. Um, that, that's what really was attractive after a short period of time, how they all looked after and, and treated you like a little brother. Where were these other seamen from? How had they found themselves there? Uh, well, a lot of them were from um, the ex, uh, like Grey Funnel Line, so the Royal Navy. Other guys had just come through, um, normal seamen. They were deck boys right up to, so they were on the previous ships. There was probably three or four of them. I know Mickey Turner was. I think Mick, he was 60, about 60, 61 when I first met him in 81, 82. He retired in 85. Um, so he went. He was on the previous ships, the Lewin, the Otway and uh, the Cape York. So he'd been on um, – there's another guy, Aussie, he was on the Cape Don. These guys had only been on these ships their whole lives, so maybe only two ships, which is pretty much unheard of when you think of merchant seamen. They go through a lot of ships in their sea career, which I have now. I would still be there if they were still around, I'd say. Um, but, yeah, but, but basically the Royal Navy or the previous ships, the, um, uh, the previous Cape ships. But we, not, not many people left. It was such a, an enjoyable job. We all, we all stuck together and everybody just loved the work, loved, you know, we worked hard and we partied hard. Um, they're very unique like that. And even if you go to the reunions now every year, which I haven't unfortunately been able to go to, um, it's just lovely seeing a lot of the guys that, you know, um, I looked up to and were like uncles or older brothers and all that sort of to me now. They're in their 80s and some been in their 90s. But to me, the Morton was my home. Um, I did spend about a year on the Don, probably six months on the Pillar. Um, they're, they're all different in, in little ways, but they're, they're pretty similar. Um, it was just where you work that was so different. Working in Western Australia was just so different, um, whereas um, the West Australian boys had it totally different to us. Um, it's a totally different coastline. I think there's more lights between Brisbane and Thursday Island. Um, there's more lights there than the rest of the whole country combined. Um, so it gives you an idea of how many are on the on the barrier reef um in queensland you might do one you might do two lights in a day three lights in a day because they're so close <clears throat> whereas western australia a lot of the lights are um they're, they're a lot lot further apart so you might uh, do one light then spend 12 hours or 18 hours steaming to the next light so that was a big difference with them they looked after a lot more ground than us they went from darwin uh right round to adelaide and um the pillar look the pillar used to look after tasmania victoria and Adelaide, most of the lights in, or all the lights in Victoria and Tasmania are all land-based, so they were sort of, um, that was all organised with helicopters and land-based um, servicing, so they took the pillar out of service of lights then. So mm. the, the Don covered a hell of a lot of ground, uh, whereas we just stayed in um, Queensland. The crews were very different. We were very competitive against each other. That used to be fun. <laughs> Go from the, the Don to the Morton, and yeah, we do it better over here than the Morton, and the Morton, you know, we do it better than you guys over there. Just good old Aussie, you know, competitive stuff and take 
taking the mickey and all that sort of stuff. Um, <laughs> just, just this very different work. That's all from from a, um, a boat driving perspective uh, and and the lark and all that sort of stuff. Very different islands, very different grounds you'd cover. Victoria is very different um, as well. You'd have um, hard places to land, like Wilson's Promontory with the lark. That was a very dangerous landing spot. Um, very slippery rocks compared to us going on reefs and mud and sand and all that sort of stuff. Australia is an incredibly vast country in terms of land, let alone its marine areas. For people particularly listening who aren't familiar with what it actually is like up in northern Australia, you know, from Western Australia all the way around to Queensland, would you be able to give us a flavour of the experiences sure. you had and, you know, what it, what it looked like, what animals were out there? Yeah, sure. One of the things that um, sort of was an eye-opener to me as a kid going up there at 15, 16 through the Whit Sundays in North Queensland, you just expect it to be like all tropical, uh, palm trees everywhere, just what you heard about the barrier reef and all that sort of stuff. And it was just, um, it's just scrub. Um, it's, it's got a beauty of its own, um, but it wasn't the tropical paradise you think it was the islands. There's a hell of a lot of pine trees, I tell you, in the Whit Sundays. Um, not many palm trees. Um, that was, that was, very educational for me. Get up to the Thursday Islands. Um, it's just all natural Australian bush, so it's not your, your typical what you think you'd see in the West Indies or the Maldives or all those Fiji and all those sort of. That's what I was sort of expecting, but um, that that didn't eventuate. It was just um, yeah, it was interesting to see that uh, in its natural state. Um, Western Australia, um, basically, as soon as you go north of Perth, um, seeming or even on the land, there's not many trees above four foot high. Um, so it's a very it's a very barren type of coastline. Um, like, again, it's a beauty of its own, um, beautiful beaches and all that sort of stuff. And going up to their islands um, compared to the Queensland islands, you can go basically right up to the edge of an island because it's so deep, it just, there's drop-offs with the reef. Uh, whereas Western Australia, you, you might have to anchor, you know, one or two miles off because there's just gradual um, um Inclined for the um, seabed to come up to the beach, so you might have a longer drive in the boats or the um, or the lark from um, what you did in Queensland and Victoria and Tasmania is just all um, deep water. Um, that was the major difference for me. Um, but yeah, it's mainly it was just interesting. It was all Australian um, scrub. The outer reefs of the big one, but in in Queensland, they're just beautiful. Um, and the same with Western Australia. There's one called Imperious Reef for the Rolling Shoals. They are absolutely some of the most spectacular um, reefs you'll ever see ever what did seamen do on the cape ships you had four departments and if you throw in the uh, the lighthouse mechanics so um the officers would get us from a to b um they would get us from one island to the next one they would do um the navigation get us here during the day or the night um our role then was with the cape ships basically it was to do maintenance maintenance construction and um, refueling. So before the solar panels came in, they were fueled by um, settling gas bottles. So we would have like a three month uh, work program. So um, the office would work out that we would go say from March through till May and we'll just go from Mackay say up to Thursday Island and we'll do X amount of um, uh, light beacons and towers for that, uh, change out the gas bottles. Uh, refuel maybe some of the light, um, the um, lighthouses that had families on. They were uh, fueled by diesel, so man ones were. Uh, we would take them food, all that sort of stuff. And say another three months would be what you call maintenance. So we'll do the paint downs. So these were all steel towers that were built, say around the 1910s to the 1930s, um, some earlier. So we would um, spend maybe five days at one light, um, do old school rigging seamanship where we had. Um, 
what you call flying stages with planks. We would needle gun. Um, that, that's getting rid of rust off the tower. Then we'd paint, um, get it all, all spruced up. Then another three months, it might be we'll, we'll build a new light tower. It depends. Uh, Mid-80s, we would spend two months maybe building helicopter pads. So it was um, very different um, each, each three months. The, the department did try to keep us in the southern water, so south of Mackay in cyclone season, maybe three months from maybe December through till March um, or April we would be from Mackay south. We also changed out marine boys in harbours, so Brisbane Harbour, Gladstone Harbour, over in the west it would have been Port Hedland, um, just this stuff like that, uh, marine boys, that was very dangerous work. You've shared some photos from your time on the Cape ships that when I look at them, they just seem unfathomable and a world away from what I have imagined what seamen did. The, the big difference for us was compared to, so we were merchant navy, but we were very different to the blue water industry and the oil and gas industry. These uh, The blue water was basically, they go from port to port to port. They might, so where we painted down the light towers, um, the blue water guys might use some of the same equipment, but they'll paint the funnel on the ship or they'll paint a crane on the ship. But they were just going from, say, Melbourne to Brisbane on a container ship or an oil tanker would go there. But we were what you call specialised uh, rigging ships. So the work we did, like with the boys, that was really dangerous. Um, you had to... You had to jump on the boy, so the boat would take you across and you'd jump on the boy. you have a boy jumper. Um, you'd, you'd rig up all the lifting gear on it. The ship would actually have to come up very close to it and the crane would swing out and the guys would have a big rope on it and they would swing the crane hook out, nearly knock you out. you hook it up, pull it up, all that sort of stuff. We used to do construction work where we'd, we'd build a, um, a brand-new lighthouse from the, from the seabed right up, um, the four-legged ones with the towers on them. Um, putting scaffold up in three or four foot surf. Um, it was just crazy what we used to do. We used to do hooker diving with no training. So you'd have a little compressor in the boat with a, with a garden hose going onto it and you'd be diving, putting the scaffold feet into the reef. You'd have one guy on shark watch. You had to dodge sea snakes. There was stonefish. You had to um, be, a, well, you'd never see them, but you had to be aware you could step on one. It was just, yeah, it was crazy stuff. And there was no limit to the weather. So no matter what the weather was like, we just had to get the job done. So sometimes you're going down in three, four metre seas, um, letting the boats down, just just dangerous work. Sometimes um, when there was a, what you call a wet island, um, that the lark couldn't go on it, so it was a boat job. There'd be ropes already set up where the boat would uh, pull into a little cove, tie up, and sometimes it would get hooked up in the propeller. It was a deck boy's job. No matter how old you were, whether you were scared or not, it was your job to dive over the side of the boat with a pair of um, with a sw swimming goggles on and, and cut the rope free and put a new one back on, all that sort of stuff. Like sometimes we um, we did rescues. We'd be in the middle of nowhere and um, we, we came across some uh, pot, pot growers up in, way up in northern Queensland. Um, they flipped a dinghy and one of the guys was uh, swimming and screaming and we noticed him from the island that we were doing. I can't remember which island it was, but we went over and picked him up. There was plastic bags floating everywhere with PVC pipes. Uh, he didn't want, to, want us to pick anything up. He just wanted us to drop him back ashore. Other times we rescued yachties that were just totally lost, had no charts. We'd, we'd come out and just ask us where they were. We'd have to try and explain to them that they're 300 miles north of Cooktown and 20 miles south of here and all this sort of stuff. Out of curiosity, how many how many seamen were there involved with the Cape ships at any one time? Um, we had three. 
Um, on board, you had four departments. Um, you had the navigators, which were the officers, the captain, first uh, chief mate, second mate, third mate. Then you had the engineers. They looked after the, the engines, obviously. Then you had the caterers, which were stewards and cooks. There was us, so we probably are the, the, the able seamen who um, did all the maintenance on the lights. Um, probably all up, maybe 35 guys on board. So then you've got a two-crew system. There's 70, three times 70, maybe 210 to 300 guys that have been employed. And then you had the shore-based lighthouse mechanics. And, of course, you had probably, I don't know, 20 or 30, um, uh, I'd have to think about that, maybe 20 lighthouse families around the, around the country. How do, how do those numbers compare to the number of seamen or sea persons today? How, you know, where... Is it as a popular a profession as it was then as now? Uh, well, no, we've been totally decimated. The Australian maritime industry, it's a very political uh, situation where certain federal governments have wanted to get rid of the maritime union and we used to have a lot of cargo ships. Um, and on the, other, on the other side of the coin, you've got uh, vessels become far more modernised, so you, leave, you need less crew. Um, that's on the cargo ships. You might only the crew. Uh, the one I'm on joining probably on Friday will only have a crew of maybe twenty. Some only have crews of twelve, thirteen. Um, you only have one to watch. Uh, back then we used to have two to watch. So there's a lot of negotiations between the unions and the companies back in the eighties and the early nineties to demand ships, making um, not upskilling. It's making you more. Uh, you can do far more things, uh, <clears throat> and that didn't really work too well. Um, one of the downsides to the, the cave ships was was um, I, I was lucky enough to catch the last 10 years, but uh, we were what you call the first of the renewables. So we basically, after about 1984, we spent the next six years, maybe seven years, putting ourselves out of work. So when I say that, we were building helicopter pads on a lot of these remote islands um, on the uh, on the reefs and we're putting solar panels in. So they were fueled by settling gas bottles. And that was one of the major things that we did was the refuelling. So we'd have a three to four month program where we would go um, and refuel all the lights for about three or four months. But then obviously solar power and batteries, you don't have to do that. If there's any maintenance or um, emergency breakdowns, they have one small ship now that just basically is on standby in the Barrier Reef. I'm not too sure about the rest of the country. Um, but that was sort of uh, the, the end of the industry was coming, the end of the golden era where demanding vessels, modernised stuff, and, yeah, solar batteries came in. Did you realise that at the time that you were all essentially, for lack of a better analogy, digging your own career graves? Yeah, probably about uh, probably only about a year after I joined, uh, when we did Hydrographer's Passage in 19, uh, 1982 and 1983. That's when the first solar panels were going in. And you sort of, it was going to be a slow process, but, yeah, I started thinking at only 17 years old that this, I'll have to start thinking about where else is my going to... Um, take my sea career because probably within 10 years it was going to be down to one ship or two ships like that and then eventually no ships whatsoever. The department actually wasn't telling us too much, but you could see that you didn't have to be too smart to um, work it out what was going on. Probably, I think, 1994, 95 were the last of um, uh, the, the, the third uh, set of Cape ships, the Don, the Morton and the Pillar. For people interested in, you know, embarking on a sailor or seaman career, what avenues do they actually have? today um it's very limited now because we've got very small opportunities you can become we had it we got restructured so they changed it to um it's becoming what you call multi-skilled so we're not called able seamen anymore we're called integrated ratings so you can do um courses down the maritime college in launceston you can get sponsored by certain companies so because what you call 
you've got two two sections to our two sectors to our industry. It's called the blue water and um, the offshore. So the offshore looks after the oil and gas industry, and the blue water is basically cargo ships, so containers like um, oil, uh, gas, uh, bauxite. Iron ore, coal, all that sort of stuff. Um, we used to have sugar ships going up and down the coast, but that's all with overseas labour now. Uh, we used to have between 60 and 100 ships only 15 years ago, but just through politics, um, our industry has been decimated. They've got things called uh, single voyage permits now. So the, Fed, the uh, federal government brought in, you just get a permit to go from, say, Melbourne to Sydney, um, and it can be done by a foreign crew. So it's not much of a, uh, <coughs> sorry, it's not much of a career anymore. Every young boat's looking at it unless um, it turns around and we start looking at um, having our own national line again like we used to have back in the pre-90s, the Australian national line. But, yeah, it's um, not much of a career anymore. It's sort of dying, unfortunately. I see almost as a national priority having a able-bodied seaman workforce is not a priority any longer, nor is having a fleet of... I guess what you would call merchant ships, for example. No, it's sad, and, and there's a lot of first world countries that still do have um, their merchant fleets. Um, I'll point to America. They've got a capitalistic society there that um, has something called the Jones Act. So we also used to have something called cabotage. Japan still has it. Um, so what that means is, is when any cargo that's taken from one Australian port to another, so if there's some containers that need to go from Sydney to Melbourne, um, that has to be, that in America, that has to be not only um, taken by an American crewed ship, that, that ship has to be built in America. So they have a very vibrant shipbuilding industry. They have their own um, ships in, in the event of war. They have their own cargo ships that take cargo around and um, everything around the country. Japan has 13,000 seamen employed because they have cabotage. Um, we used to have it here, uh, but John Howard in 1996-97, I think it was about 1998, they got rid of it. Um, and it's, it's sad because we don't have, we used to have what we call Australian's National Line. And the Labor Party was just as guilty. They, were, um, they got rid of the Australian National Line, but it's just been a slow sort of death by a thousand cuts um, that we, we don't have much of an industry left and we're an island nation, unfortunately. Yeah, it's a curious point you make. You know, we are an island nation surrounded by water and yet sailing as a profession outside of sport is not really a um, a priority. And what's the difference between the Royal Navy and the Merchant Fleets? Oh, one's just, uh, well, the Royal Navy's just, they're uh, totally different to us. They're employed by the government. Um, they're on different contracts, different conditions. They're not unionised. They don't do anything collectively in the sense of um, wages and conditions. That's all determined by the Department in the Royal Navy. Um, they spend a lot more time at sea than us, um, and it's totally different training. Yeah, totally different. But there, there'll, be, there'll be a lot of basics that, um, we, we, that would have been the same as what we would have got on the Cape ships, small boat driving, um, handling different things. We, we were taught how to drive the Lark by um, Army personnel, and then they would come out and be retrained by us to actually drive the things on reefs and um, going ashore and all that sort of stuff. But apart from that, they're like apples and oranges, really. Just, just there'd be about 20 to 30% basic seniorship type skill level would be taught the same, but after that, it's um, totally different. I see. So so Royal Navy's almost the public sector version of yeah. seamen, yeah. and the merchant fleets are more you know, the free agent type sector. Yeah, the private sector. Yeah. Private sector. Yeah. yeah. Why do you think Australia's decided to take a step back from, I guess, the merchant maritime industry and not have as many ships and rely on the foreign fleets? 
it's a political question. I think I think they personally that they wanted to get rid of the union movement. They wanted to get rid of the Seamen's Union of Australia and going from over 150 ships to a very well organised, very well paid, uh, highly efficient, well trained professional uh, trade. We've basically got nothing left, and the unions are a lot smaller. That's my personal opinion. Interesting. I think it'd be an interesting point to think about because I don't think people one realised how large that industry was nor, you know, what it currently does today. I think when people think about the economy and whatnot, they think about, well, I think they do think about shipping, but there's no, you know, tie to the fact Australia could have a part yeah, in that. Yeah, yeah. Well, we call them um, sweatships. So a lot of people are politically inclined to, and it's good, um, you think about sweatshops overseas, you don't want to buy a certain shirt or a certain purse of equipment from a country that only pays people $2 an hour, say in Bangladesh or whatever it is. But most people don't realise how many ships come into their home ports every single day, whether it be Brisbane, Sydney, Cairns, um, Adelaide, Perth, Darwin, whatever it is. Um, most of those ships have slave labour on them. They're Filipinos, Russians, um, Europeans seem that are only on probably two or three dollars a day. If that, um, it's a very, very, very um, dodgy industry. And unfortunately, they're called we we call them sweatships. They're flag flag convenience ships because they're um, flagged out of certain countries at low taxes, um, not not good health and safety. And then you've got um, yeah the low wages, which we 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 try to um, expose, but it's very hard. I see. Nice. I like your point about you know. We hate paying for shipping, for example, even in our in, in our post. The idea that that then translates to a very undervalued and therefore low-paid industry for people stuck yeah. on these ships for months or years at a time. Um, yeah, yeah. It's actually called sweat ships. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, it, it's it's um you'd be horrified at some of the stories that um that are abounded. Yeah, they're abounding um the, the the whole international shipping industry. They're like a cartel. The major shipping uh, companies are like cartels. I came across, I guess, the story of the Cape ships almost as a reflective point made by one of the people lucky enough to have lived and worked around light stations. But why do you think the Cape ships and their role within the lighthouse service are not better known? Um, good question. I've got no idea. Um, there's been many books written with, um, like, lighthouse keepers. Um, I think there's one one book that was sort of showed our work. Um, it was on the Cape Grafton, which was the ship that um, replaced the, the three Cape ships. But apart from that, um, most Australians just look at lights and they don't. Um, I'm, I'm not too sure. I, I can't speak for them. Um, it's just like people don't understand where the fuel comes from, how they lit, who looks after them. The silent operators in the background making everything happen smoothly. By the sounds of it. Well, everybody, yeah, everybody plays their part. Uh, don't get me wrong. Like the mechanics, also too. You know, there's, there's nothing written about the lighthouse mechanics either. They're the ones who we would drop them off to the light. They're the ones who would do all the work. They're like uh, like gas plumbers. They're looking after the lines, checking for leaks, all that sort of stuff. Um, do the work on the light. We would refuel it. But you know, um, nobody ever thinks about that sort of stuff either. This could be it. This could be the uh, <laughs> the first expose of Cape Ships and what it was like. Uh, I hope so. Yeah, it's, it's, always, it's always irritating because, um, like, that we, we risk our lives and, and kudos to all the books that were written on the lighthouse keeps and all that sort of stuff. They deserve that. You know, they sacrificed a hell of a lot um, in their lives with their kids being so isolated, themselves being isolated from family and friends and all that. 
but we, we gave them the food. We, we would give, uh, transfer them from Ireland to Ireland, take their furniture, all their belongings, all that sort of stuff, and we're just sort of like the silent ones in the whole operation. Why should people be interested and in particular be interested in preserving this industry or at least its history? They say it takes two generations to get a skill back. Um, we're just about to lose a whole industry of, of shipbuilding and also um, semen that will be gone maybe in 20 or 30 years, and you, you just don't get that back overnight. So it's important that as an island nation that we show an interest in um, our waters. Um, a lot of these ships apply here now are rust buckets. Uh, it's not police well, all that stuff I went through before. There is a chance that they'll um, run aground here, sink, um, the engines won't work, um, fishing industries could be destroyed, tourist industries could be destroyed, the barrier reefs at risk. Um, there, there's an envi- heavily environmental interest that we should be taking in this, um, just to look after stuff um, and to have your own shipping industry. So it's like if you, if you haven't got wheels for trucks running up and down the road and wheels fall off and whatever it is, um, it's, the analogy is as close as I can get. Is if you don't look after what's on, on the roads and um, things break down and things suffer. Um, you'll have fuel spillages from uh, fuel tankers um, running off the road. Um, it's just bigger because they're ships. Um, just to show an interest even for environmental reasons um, is a big one for us. But, yeah, to have something that it creates a lot of jobs. Um, like I said, Japan's got 13,000 seamen around the coastline. I'm not too sure how many Americans have, but it, it creates employment and it's very enjoyable employment. There's nothing better than um, being out in the ocean and um, you're doing your watch at night time under the stars. You're looking out for other ships, other lights. Um, it's just it's not a mundane, boring job. It's a great job. It's something every day. Um, you're like family. It's it's just very different. We could have another fifteen thousand jobs here if we wanted to, um, like Japan does. If we if we decided to have every single bit of cargo that's taken from port to port around Australia um, carried by an Australian flag ship with Australian crews on it, we should be building the ship city to have a vibrant shipping industry. Um, we we built things around this country, not not buildings, but we built very important structures around this country that um, allows this country to trade. Um, that's that's the main thing for me. And I wish people could under, uh, I wish the word would get out. I actually approached Peter Fitzsimmons um, on Twitter and I, I tried to sell him the idea of a book, but um, yeah, unfortunately he didn't take the bait. He ignored me, all the photos I sent him. Maybe he will take notice after this uh, podcast. Oh, I don't know about that. <laughs> 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 all right thank you so much for your time steve all the best in quarantine hope you know four more days left end is near no worries Amanda. thanks very much for the chance to um uh, tell some stories what steve has just described has just blown my mind in terms of it was wild times out there on the high sea sounds like you know pirate wild times just a world away from any conception I had about what the crew did, but also just the activities that are happening in the ocean just generally. Yeah, you hear a lot about international waters being like a crazy place. I never really heard about it in practice. All the, as you say, the pirate times, the wild seas as well, doing crazy activities in all, in all weathers, the boy jumping, like jumping onto a boy, building a lighthouse from the bottom up in the middle of the ocean, and there's like one person who's on shark watch, like looking out for sharks. That's a crazy job role, isn't it? To be on shark watch. It's actually bizarre all of the all of the things they're doing, how important it is to the to the infrastructure of Australia and our trade routes and all this like important shipping stuff. They're doing really important work, but that it's like just happening in this like crazy circumstances. It's, it's wild. 
I feel like the adventure is on a new frontier on the reef and like in these ships just putting up what they can. And that and I know we talked before the interview about even looking at the photo and how crazy it was that they were even doing it. But hearing actually how he did it, and you're totally right. I love that the safety, you know, mechanism for making sure they weren't sharks is you just have to go and look for them. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Do sharks, like, are they well known for being, like, visible? Surely they can strike from, from below. Correct. Surely they figured out by now, we, you know, we only look in one direction and they're sneaking <laughs> yeah. around the back. <laughs> what, what, what are the sharks thinking is happening? What do they think from the from the perspective of the crocodile infested waters? What are the crocodiles? What do they think is going on? The humans are just invading their territory and doing weird things. Yeah. Build lighthouses in the middle of their hunting grounds. Speaking of what are you doing in the middle of the ocean? I love that story he told about saving what we probably can safely assume were pot growers in northern <laughs> Queensland. <laughs> Don't worry about yeah. it. Just, just leave the cargo. I'm like, if that was actually my <laughs> important stuff, I'd be like, yes, pick it up. And they're like, no, nah, just don't touch it. Leave it. It's gone. Mm. <laughs> How crazy is that story Steve told about sweatships? Mm. The idea that there are these people who are living in these crazy working conditions on the ships that are actually running the global economy in terms of the supply chain and all the things we take for granted that just will appear at our door. And to the same extent, I know we talked about it in the interview, but the same extent that we are almost aghast that our clothes are made by people in sweat, sweat uh, by people in sweatshops, surely we should hold the same amount of almost disgust that they're being delivered by people working in the same conditions. Yeah, absolutely. I, I was... Once again, I was aghast. Great word, Andy. I was aghast because it's just such an invisible part of the supply chain. I think maybe truck drivers, we can see trucks on the road. We, we, we can understand that they're driving really long distances to deliver our fresh produce to the, to the supermarket. But the ships, I'm, I'm not once or it's not once have I seen a ship that I'm aware of. <laughs> or any kind of ship, really, any shipping yeah. container, you kind of just... Stay away from mm. them, out of sight, out of mind. And you're totally right because we try and regulate truck drivers and make sure that they're working under the safest possible conditions. And we still don't get it right. Can you imagine the plight of these poor people stuck on these ships working for private companies, unregulated, mm. completely unregulated and beholden to whatever conditions that there are of them? Yeah, absolutely. I think that there's absolutely a story here. And Steve Best calls out Peter Fitzsimmons, I'd like to echo that call. I'd like to double down. Peter Fitzsimmons, please write a book about the cape ships, the sweat ships. There's so much going on at sea that's so critical to us having food and clothes and ships being able to see their way through the ocean. I think it's just an incredible series of stories that would be a great, a great book. So Peter, if you're listening, I think we've got a <laughs> I think we've got a book, a book and a story for you. Thank you, firstly, to Steve Best for opening our minds to the wider ocean. Thanks, of course, to my co-host, Gus McDonald. Up next, we continue our trip with the Cape Class Ships with CJ and the Cape Don, a living museum for the Cape Class Ships. Until then, 
stick around to listen to Steve Best on the Cape ships and their integral role in the Hydrocultures Passage. Thank you for listening. So you mentioned the Hydrographer's Passage and how that was one of the many elements that kind of led to the demise of the Cape Ship crew and industry. Would you be able to share that story? So that that, that passage was um, found in probably, I think from memory, mid-70s, fishermen and locals who who had boats at the time um, that used to go out from Mackay thought there there was a deep channel that uh, was going out, pushing out um, east out towards the open ocean, uh, the Pacific. Um, and Mackay's a big coal port. So uh, on these rooms, the um, the Navy decided to investigate whether there was going to be a, a channel there or not, which would help um, basically ships coming from Japan and um, Asia. It was going to cut down their um, sea time, hence economically it was going to be quite good for um, the coal industry. So the HMAs, Flinders, Went out looking for um, this reef. I uh, sorry this uh, this passage. They did find it. Um, I think it was about 1979 or 1980. So then they were commissioned to um, go and find uh, find out what reefs that we could actually put lights on. Now the Morton got involved in that, and we were the ones that um, had to. So that the Flinders would say, right, we want to we want to um, survey whether that reef over there um, is going to be um, compatible for putting a lighthouse on, and whether um, a ship will be able to navigate through there based on the light on that reef. So it was our job then to um, ram in um, railway lines into the reef and put a marker on it and then the, the, the HMA cylinders would do whatever they had to do um, in regards to surveying and lights and all that sort of stuff. And that's where we would do the dangerous stuff. So we're putting scaffolding again on a reef. We're doing hooker diving um, in bad weather, all this sort of stuff. We're looking out for sharks, sea snakes, risk of getting um, stepping on a, on a um, you know, stonefish, all this sort of stuff, getting stung by stingers. I mean, there was two ships out there for the whole three or four weeks. And then we went back. Um, the, the lights were constructed ashore. They were floated out by John Holland and they put on the reef. And then we put all the... Um, all the final infrastructure on, or not infrastructure, all the final um, kitten caboos on it. So the solar panels, the lights. So we do all the intricate rigging that made those lights finally kick into power and the first ships be able to come through. The Flinders was already gone. She did the surveying and was already gone. I think people will be surprised to hear that we construct things and infrastructure on our reefs and, you know, almost blast passageways through them. Yeah. Is that is that common? And you know, w- would that be done today, for example? The, the message I'm trying to get out is, is like, bef- what I appreciated the most when I joined these ships was there was two sets of ships before me, and there was there was a pride in what these guys had done, and there's multitudes of black and white photos of guys who who were long dead and gone before I even joined the Cape Morton in 1981. And, you know, it's just a shame that the descendants of those families don't know what these guys were doing back in 1910, 1915, 1920. They were were doing it tougher than me because we had an electric crane and we had all sorts of modern equipment to help us. These guys were doing it even tougher than us. But, you know, none of that's part of Australian maritime history. Um, And I think that's really sad. It's not just about the last three captives. It's about the the whole nine of them or or eight of them that was, you know. You had the three before us and then whatever it was before that, two or three before that, smaller ones. Um, There's 100 years there, 110 years now of... uh, mainly before, say, 2000 or 1990 or 1995. It's set that 80-year that period where all those things were, were put into place, built and, and done very dangerously. 
Um, and, and it's just a shame you go to any uh, Australian Maritime Museum, we're not mentioned anywhere. You can go to Sydney, you go to Melbourne, you go to Brisbane. I think Brisbane's got a little bit on us, but um, we're not mentioned anywhere. And um, we're, the, we're the lifeblood of the country. You can't get it. Um, you can't get a ship here unless there's a shipping passage. So think of it like you um, no lights on at night on the freeway. There's no traffic lights at um. There's no roundabouts on say land-based stuff. Um, if there's no lights, ships can't come in. It's just you know, it's like people don't know that there's a Woolworths truck that turns up at two o'clock in the morning. You just go to the shops the next morning. There's food on the shelf. It's the same with um, all the cargo that comes in. Nobody knows what's going on. Um, but yeah, there's a hundred years of history there where the generations before me. Um, it's just a shame they're not thought about, mentioned, even um, written about. And if people did want to find out more, where could they actually go? To- You've got me there. I don't know. There was, um, there's a um, the Cape Don's still alive. She's a museum ship in uh, Waverton in Sydney. Um, there's a lovely guy there, Daniel Callender, that um, he's been on that ship since he's 16 years old. He's been there 15 years. He's the caretaker. They are trying to desperately get her done up and to get the message out about the history of these ships. And I love the guy for it. Um, you know, he's flying the flag for guys like me and, and the generations before us. Um, but apart from that, there's only one book written on us. Um there's a little bit of history there if you, if you dig around, but it's just, it, there is really nothing on us unless you are an absolute navig- uh, lighthouse buff and you get the right book. But mo- most books run just lighthouse keepers or the lights themselves, not the people who serviced and built them and um, looked after them. So you got me there. I'm a bit of a dead end to give you, apart from the Cape Don, um, she's on Facebook, um, the Cape Don Society. Um, they do tours every uh, second weekend, I think. They're asking for volunteers. Uh, to come down and help uh, with the maintenance on it, but it's all volunteer-based. Um, they do struggle, um, and I feel for them because they haven't got the money, um, but they do want to get it back up and try to turn that area of North Sydney into a Waverton, into a um, like a maritime precinct where people can enjoy and go down and read about um, or look at the old ship um, because I've done a, I've been there when they've done tours and I give a little talk at the end um, once or twice, and people are really interested and intrigued. The whole thing, you can tell they're really... There's just not enough information about it, but, yeah, that's about it, really, just the poor old Cape Don in Sydney. Light. House. Light. 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 House. Lighthouse. Lighthouse. Thanks for having me on your show, Amanda. <laughs> <laughs> I've been a long time listener. I really love your work. <laughs>